Can I invite you then to now turn to God's Word, and we return to our studies in the letter of Paul to the Romans, and this morning we're going to be looking at the passage in chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. But now... A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No. But on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's pray. Father, again we turn to your word and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you will open the eyes of our understanding and fill us with wonder and amazement at the glory of the gospel of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you're all familiar with the uh, the saying that the darkest hour is just before dawn. The darkest hour is just before dawn. And I'm sure those of you that perhaps are early risers will have appreciated the truth of that particular statement in a very literal sense. I can remember those days as uh, a young family. We used to pack up the car and trailer in the very early hours of the morning and set off maybe at 5 o'clock in order to get to our destination, wherever that is, um, by by breakfast time. Or even when I was a student... Uh, Travelling to Spurgeon's College in South London from the uh, far reaches of South East Essex. I thought I'd get that one in for Simon's benefit. Um, Having to negotiate the M25 and the Dartford Crossing, which in those days was just the tunnel. The bridge was being built and wasn't finished until about halfway through my college course. But having to set off in order to get to college by about 8 o'clock in time for the first lecture at 8.30. It meant leaving at the crack of dawn when it was still pitch black. And on both of those kind of uh, situations, as you travelled by car, 
you would uh, experience the rising of the sun, the lightning of that pitch black dark sky, and eventually the, the, the surrounding area being flooded with light. But those moments before the sun actually arose seem to be the darkest of the night. And there is in fact something of that kind of experience here in more of a metaphorical sense. Because in these opening chapters of the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, Paul has painted a very dark, sombre picture, a bleak picture of the human race. He's spoken about the depravity of the Gentiles in chapter 1. He's talked about the hypocrisy of the moralizers, the judgmentalism of the moralizers in chapter 2. He's talked about the self-righteousness of the religious who think that they have, because they have got the law, they are in a position to be able to teach and to instruct other people about it. And he imagines the Jews to whom, no doubt, this was partly addressed. He can imagine them protesting, surely you're not treating us in the same way as if we were Gentiles. We, of course, are a privileged people. We are the special people of God. We have received the laws and the ordinances through Moses. We, of course, are far better than the Gentiles. But if that's what you're saying, Paul, that we are just the same as the Gentiles, just as bad as them, is there really any advantage in being Jewish? Well, Paul says, firstly, well, yes, there is an advantage. Of course, you are God's special people. You have received the law. But the logical deduction of Paul's argument is very clear. Jews and Gentiles are essentially in the same sinking boat. They are both alike in this dark, somber, gloomy situation. As far as Paul's argument is concerned, they're standing before God. Both Jews and Gentiles is equally the same. There is no distinction. All, without exception, are under sin and therefore equally guilty. There is no ray of light, no flicker of hope remaining in that kind of situation. Job asked a very important question. Have you got the, uh, the slide, Tom? Is it coming up? No? Okay, thanks. Okay, is there any advantage in being with you? Yes and no. All are guilty, there is no hope. The question that Job asked, chapter 9, verse 2, was simply this. How can a mortal, a human being, be righteous before God? How can a human being be right with God? God is, after all, holy God is the one who will judge the human race. God is the one who will punish sinners, punish the guilty. How can that situation ever be changed? How can a person be right with God 
particularly before a God who is just, righteous and holy and who cannot condone sin. That is the basic question. And when you think about it, practically every religion, every religion tries to answer that question. How do I escape the judgment of whatever God I believe in? How can I get in a position of favour with my particular God? Many suggestions are made, but you know, all religions of all types, of all kinds, perhaps apart from true biblical Christianity, basically give the same answer. And that answer is this. You achieve that rightness before God by being a good person. By performing all the necessary rites, religious rites and rituals, practices and ceremonies, and by living a life of goodness. In every case, you get right with God by something that you do. But you know, the Bible and true biblical Christianity actually demonstrates and confirms that nobody, absolutely nobody, will ever be right with God in that way. Paul has clearly shown, hasn't he, starting in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2 and all the way through the first part of chapter 3, right up until verse 20, that no one can be right with God on the basis of human effort. That is the clear, unmistakable message of those opening chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. And indeed, that's how that section ends, chapter 3, verse 20. No one, he says, will be declared righteous in his God's sight by observing the law. Fundamental, clear-cut, no argument. In fact... All the human race fall short. They are all under sin. So, everyone, every human being is declared unrighteous. Everyone is under sin and therefore everyone is under the judgment of God. And nobody, absolutely nobody, has the capacity to do anything to save themselves. It doesn't matter how moral you may be. It doesn't matter how religious you may be. In your own efforts, there is no hope. That is the condemnation of the opening chapters. It is dark. It is bleak. It is somber. It is apparently hopeless. But then you come to verse 21. Chapter 3. And the first two words are really a welcome, glorious, hopeful transition. But... Now, two simple, short words, but full of spiritual glory. But now. Leon Morris is a great uh, commentator on this particular passage that describes this particular passage as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. But now. We've had enough of the gloom. We've had enough of the darkness of these opening chapters. We need some hope. And here it is. Here it is. But now. The whole mood changes. A total contrast. Something has happened to change that situation. God himself 
has intervened. The righteousness of human beings is totally inadequate. And if we are going to be made right with God, then we need a different kind of righteousness, not a righteousness of our own making. Because we can't be righteous by anything that we do, the only way that we can be right with God, the only way we can be righteous before him, is by something given to us by God. We need a righteousness which is equal to the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. And that is the kind of righteousness that God makes available. But now, the sun has risen. The dawn has broken. Light is now flooding the landscape. What about this righteousness? Well, there are a number of statements. Yes, it is a status conferred by God. We all need it. That's the first thing that I want to say. We all need it. There is no distinction. We're all in the same situation. That has been clear. It's patently obvious. All have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I will concede that not everybody is as bad as everyone else. There are degrees of badness. But everybody is in the same situation of utter inability. Let me try and illustrate that. Jonathan Edwards still holds the world record, I understand, for the triple jump. Is that right? I don't think anybody's broken it yet. 18.29 metres, set in 1995. Now, this may surprise you, but I can do the triple jump. Well, actually, it's kind of a quadruple jump. I would describe it as a hop, a skip, and a jump, and then collapse in utter humiliation. I would never, ever be able to get anywhere near his amazing record. But if Jonathan Edwards and I were to stand on the top of the cliffs of Dover, for example, and attempt to jump the channel... Well, he would do his bits and I would do my bits and the likelihood is that he would get a lot further than me. But neither of us would ever reach Calais. Both of us would probably land in different spots at the bottom of the cliff, both equally dead. And that's the way it is. No matter how good we are, we will never reach God. We all come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That is the great summary of these opening chapters. And the glory of God here is simply a way to define the righteousness of God. The perfection of God. The absolute holiness of God. The absolute standard that is required if someone was to be right with God by their own efforts. It would have to be total perfection. And none of us can ever 
reach that standard. So we're all in the same predicament and we all need this provision of this different kind of righteousness. The second statement, again, is patently obvious. We can't achieve it. We've proved that already. It is, Paul says, apart from the law. It has nothing to do with obedience to the law. He's talking about the Jewish law. And the righteousness that he's speaking about, this new, different type of righteousness, has nothing to do with keeping the law. If you go back into chapter, back to chapter 3, verse 20, it says, By the law... We become conscious of sin. That is the purpose of the law, to highlight how bad we are. It was never given in order to make us right with God. The law cannot lead to salvation. It only reveals the problems that we face. It declares that we're all sinners. The law could only make us righteous if we kept it 100%. And it just requires one transgression however small to make us guilty of breaking the law and bringing us to judgment and so if God is to give us a righteousness that will satisfy all his demands then it will have to be a perfect righteousness in every respect a kind of righteousness that fulfills the law in every single minute detail Is that possible? The answer is yes. And Paul's argument is very clear. That that kind of righteousness is found in the life of God's son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, being God, was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly obedient to all the demands of the law. He was without Sin. Not only did he fulfill all the demands of the law upon a person's life, he went further than that. And he fulfilled perfectly the penalty that the law demands upon those who are transgressors, on those who are disobedient. On the cross, he bore the penalty. Of sin demanded by the law. So Jesus is this perfect model of righteousness. And that kind of righteousness that he exhibited is the kind of righteousness, that perfect righteousness, which is required by us. We cannot achieve it, it has to come from heaven, from God. We can't achieve a righteousness of our own. We cannot achieve any kind of righteousness other than to receive something. So how do we receive it? Well, again, it's a simple statement. God gives it to all who believe. If the law doesn't lead to salvation, what does? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, Paul goes on to cite the example of Abraham. 
And to summarize his argument there, it's simply this, that even in the Old Testament, righteousness came as a gift, not through obedience. It came through faith. Chapter 4, verse 3, isn't it? What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There it is, faith, belief. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on to say that Abraham didn't waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised He was able to perform, and that was credited to him as righteousness. And that really defines faith for us, doesn't it? It's believing that what God promises to do, he does. Believing that what God promises to do, he does. How do you receive the righteousness of God that is available through Jesus? Simply by believing in the promise of the gospel. That he will give you his righteousness if you put your, your trust, your faith firmly in Christ. Simply believe. And you know, there are three key words that explain how this is all possible. Three theological terms which all of us ought to try to understand. The first is this, justification. I'm sure you've come across that in Paul's uh, writings. This is a key word in Paul's argument. It's a legal term. Paul is inviting us, perhaps, to consider a courtroom scenario. Obviously, his perception of what a courtroom scenario was would be different from our understanding of the court. But let's just imagine a courtroom scene in our context. We are on trial. And we have no defense. We are guilty. We know that. Not even Rumpole of the Bailey can help you. You know, he's packed up his bags. He's left the courtroom. He's gone to the pub round the corner, as was his wont. And you're left there waiting for the sentence to be passed on you by the judge. We are before God. We stand before God. Guilty. Under condemnation. And yet, and this is the wonderful, glorious message of the gospel, the God who is the judge before whom we stand is also loving and gracious and desires to declare us not guilty. He wants to declare the guilty sinner righteous. And that is what justification means. How can he do that? How can he justify the ungodly and still remain just? How can he make the ungodly right with him? How can he do that? When God says, I justify you, what effectively he's doing is this. He is taking our guilt from off us and placing it on Jesus. And Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. And then he takes the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness which he acquired by his perfect life and by his perfect sacrifice. And he takes that righteousness and places it on us. And so he now sees us just as if 
I'd never sinned. Jesus goes to the cross. And according to Paul writing elsewhere in the second letter to the Corinthians, Jesus became sin for us. God treated him as if he had committed the sins. And he punished Jesus fully in our place. And he does that, Paul says here, verse 24, freely, freely through grace. It's not by works. It is by grace through faith. So that, dear friends, is the heart of the gospel right there. So simple, but so profound. The only way that we can be justified in the sight of God is by receiving that salvation as a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not wages. It's not what we deserve. It is a gift. Grace is simply the favor of God given to us, even though we do not deserve it. We haven't earned it, but God treats us as righteous. The second term that I want to draw your attention to more briefly is redemption. Yes, this righteousness may be a free gift to us, but it doesn't come cheap. It needed a great price being paid. Verse 24. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption, I suppose, we understand as uh, getting something back by the payment of a price. Some of you may remember the old uh, pawnbrokers that used to exist on our streets. You know, if you were short of cash, you would go to the pawnbrokers and hand in some item of property and they would give you the money and they would hold it for a while in the hope that you would get the money at some stage and you could go back and redeem it. Today it's cash converters or something like that. But in Paul's understanding, it was much more the marketplace, and in particular the marketplace where slaves were purchased. And a kind, generous person would come along and see a slave. He would pay the price that was being demanded, the purchase price of that slave. He would pay it over to whoever was uh, looking for a deal. And then setting the slave free. And that is the picture that Paul wants us to to pick up on. A slave being purchased by a generous God and then being released from slavery. And the blood of Christ was the price, price that was paid for our release, for our redemption. God pays the price to redeem us from his own justice. That is the amazing thing. That God is involved. The third concept, quickly, is the atoning sacrifice. Verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. What does that mean? Well, if you grew up like I did on the old King James Version, the authorized version, you will know that that particular phrase was there translated as a propitiation. It's not a word that is in common usage today which is probably why the translators have not used it. 
But actually, the word propitiation does have a very significant meaning that is often missed. And theologians have argued over this and deliberately avoided using that term because they do not like what it means. It means that when God is propitiated, his wrath, his anger, has been satisfied. The demands of justice have been satisfied. And the anger of God is averted. And so we become, and we can break down that word, at one with God. It's about reconciliation. The sin which separated us has been dealt with. The barriers have been broken down. And we are now at one with God. Well, in conclusion, this is a short passage, but boy, is it full of theology. Isn't it full of amazing, wonderful truth? You know, we can do nothing more really this morning other than stand in awe at the wonderful goodness and grace of God. How can we be right with God? Not by anything that we can do, but because of everything that Jesus has done. You don't earn your way to heaven. You never will. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And God is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So if you've never done it, I urge you this morning to receive that righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Stop trying to earn your own salvation. You never can and you never will. It's a hopeless task. Allow the sun of righteousness to arise in your life for the light to dispel that gloom and darkness and to see the way clearly ahead, a way which is faith in Jesus, which leads to the goal of being right with God. I want to close this morning by just playing a short YouTube video clip. It's a song which is entitled What Wisdom Once Devised the Plan. It's not a song I think we've ever sung. But uh, I just want you to focus on the words. It might be a song that sooner or later you'll want to. Wisdom once devised the plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of the sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne.
what righteousness was there revealed and sets the guilty free that justifies ungodly men and calls the filthy clean a righteousness that proved to all your justice has been Father, we thank you for the glory of the cross. We thank you for all that it's achieved, for all that it means to us. And as we approach, in just a few short weeks, the Easter season, 
when our thoughts will turn especially to the sufferings and death of your son Jesus and the glory of his resurrection. We pray that we might see those momentous events in the context of what God was doing on the cross in providing a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. We thank you that that way is opened and all may go in. A Calvary's cross is where we begin when we come as a sinner to Jesus. Lord, this morning, as we bow in your presence, we pray that for those of us that have responded to that invitation to repentance and faith, that we might appreciate once more the glory of our salvation. And for those who may be still on the margins and still sitting on the fence and still maybe even a long way off, we pray that your message to them this morning will be one which will draw them closer to the cross, closer to that moment in time when they respond, respond to the message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Open blind eyes, we pray. May the light of Christ dawn and may the hope of God shine in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.